Happy Monday and welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Bree Fallon and he's Dave McConaughey. It's so nice to speak to you again, Bree. We just had a fabulous discourse episode from Sydney Castillo about religious festivals during coronavirus. Did you get a chance to listen to that this week? I certainly did. I want to thank Sydney so much for that episode. And it was really well-timed because we're in the middle of a lot of high holidays amongst the Jewish faith. And I've had a lot of friends talking about trying to do those sort of festivals amongst COVID with Zoom. So I thought it was a really fabulous and well-timed episode. But what do we have coming up this week? This week, we actually have an interview that you did with good friend of the RSP, Richard Newton. The episode is titled Roots as Scripture and Scripture as Roots. Take it away. It's Bree Fallon here, and I'm joined today by Assistant Professor Richard Newton. Dr. Newton is Assistant Professor of the Religious Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. He received his PhD in Critical Comparative Scriptures from Claremont Graduate University. Dr. Newton's areas of interest include theory and method in the study of religion, African-American history, the New Testament in Western imagination, American cultural politics, and pedagogy in religious studies. His research explores how people create scriptures and how these productions operate in the formation of identities and cultural boundaries. In addition to an array of book chapters and online essays, Dr. Newton has published in the Journal of Biblical Literature, Method and Theory in the Study of Religion, Religion Compass, and Religion and Theology, just to name a few. His new book, Identifying Roots, Alex Haley and the Anthropology of Scriptures, has been published as part of the Culture on the Edge book series edited by Stephen Ramey, published by Equinox. And this book casts Alex Haley's roots as a case study in the dynamics of scriptures and identity politics with critical implications for the study of race, religion and media. You can learn more about his research and pedagogy at his social media professional development site, Sowing the Seed, Fruitful Conversations in Religion, Culture and Teaching. Welcome, Richard. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk about your new book today. I was just confessing to you before we hit the record button that as an Australian, I had never heard of this book, Roots by Alex Halley or Haley. I'm not quite sure. Haley. Haley. Um, so tell us a bit about um, a bit about the book and why it's the center of your new book. Well, I think the the place to start is to recognize that the importance of anything um, called scripture uh, doesn't really rely upon the text being read. And so for me, it's actually quite a treat to talk to someone who's not familiar with Alex Haley's roots, because much like someone would think of like the Gideon Bible or something along those lines, there's, there's power in the presence of the text or in the idea of the text and the legacy that um, extends beyond the text itself. So for those who aren't familiar with Alex Haley's roots, um, the best way to probably present it is to say that it was sort of a social media phenomena before social media. So in 1976, which was kind of the United States bicentennial year, uh, its birthday, if you will, um, Alex Haley, an African-American author um, who was famous for uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley, um, he sort of worked with Malcolm X on writing and codifying that autobiography, Alex Haley presented his family's story in this large saga form. Um, and the way the story goes is that 
uh, Alex Haley, you know, a mid 20th century African American um, or Black American at the time, I should say, uh, was able to trace his family's origins through oral history and archival research to the African who landed on the the uh, in the British colonies in the United in the contemporary United States and was able to connect uh, Kunta Kinte was his name to uh, his ancestral line and can sort of trace it over uh, the span of multiple generations over you know a couple hundred years and so his story of how he traced it and who these people are and more, most importantly how they led to his family being one of prominence and success in the United States became a story that was paradigm changing for how um, Americans and many others thought about history, family history, race and origins. Um, and so whether one has read Roots or not, Roots has likely impacted um, modern sensibilities about how we trace where we come from and how that relates to who we are. And in terms of how this book was received at the time. It sort of made quite a splash. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think just by the the numbers, uh, Alex Haley's Roots was just a phenomena that um, really was unheard of, especially for literature and then television revolving around Black peoples. So Alex Haley's book came out in the sort of the fourth quarter of 1976. And it was the top selling book, save for um, Woodward and Bernstein's um, uh, All the President's Men, which was on the Watergate scandal in the United States. So in a couple of months, this book rose to that level of prominence, that it was like the number two book in the country. It went on to live to win a National Book Award, a Pulitzer Prize citation, and many other sort of honorifics. And very quickly was made into a television miniseries um, that was uh, must-see television in the United States. It came out in January 1977 over the course of a week. And the the viewing numbers of it were record-breaking for decades, really. I mean, the numbers of people who tuned in to watch this miniseries that revolved around Black people and the story of uh, enslavement and emancipation and um, the telling of American history from the perspective of Black peoples, the numbers rivaled the Super Bowl. Um, so, you know, if, if football, American football is uh, the sort of penultimate television uh, event in the United States, Alex Haley's Roots was right there with it for decades. And so this is, this is the kind of thing that now would have hashtags um, on social media following it and, and all the like. But, you know, in 1976, that looked like uh, sellout bookstores. It looked like people, families crowded over televisions. Um, watching each installment of the miniseries. It's, it, it was water cooler talk at the workplace the next day, people having conversations not only about Roots, but where were people's families during the moments discussed in Roots, whether it was um, you know, the Civil War or Jim Crow or enslavement or the American Revolution, and, and how did your family participate in this or not? Um, this is the sort of conversation that Roots reoriented. And if, if you have a sort of sense of, um, history needing to be decolonized, as I know previous guests have discussed. Alex Haley's Roots was a big part of that movement in the popular imagination and not just the Academy. How has the Academy treated Roots up until this point? Because in your book, you take quite a different um, methodological approach to the analysis 
of the book, but up until now it's sort of been treated in a certain way. Yeah, Roots has been, um, it's been the source of love and hate in the Academy. And, and I think one could say the same of a lot of uh, the subject matters that scholars of religion discuss, right? Like everyone wants to talk about religion, but no one wants to talk about religion in a deep way. And I think the same has happened with Alex Haley's Roots, insofar as Roots was a very uh, popular culture phenomena. Like it was, I mean, it's a, it's a 700, 800 page book, uh, but people bought it and people read it. And people have often thought of um, American history alongside with Roots and using the language of Roots to discuss it. Um, and in so doing, though, it's kind of a rival to a lot of histories that come out of the academy. So interestingly enough, literary critics and professional historians really decried Roots upon its release. And all throughout, it was kind of seen as too lowbrow to be discussed with any seriousness in the academy. Um, I would say over the last 10 years, I mean, even when I was writing this as part of my dissertation and even doctoral research prior to, um, there was very little work done. And then only recently has there have there been a few books uh, in different fields, media studies, uh, history for sure, um, where these books have on roots have sort of come back into the public view and to the, the academy. The, academy rather and um so that's been really interesting to see like why are people thinking about this and part of it is probably a postmodern turn also we're in an era where popular phenomena of yesteryear are being rebooted so roots has actually been remade in recent um memory of just the last few years uh and was also wildly successful and and debuted on the history channel of all channels um and so that's brought a lot of academic attention back to um, this this story that changed, uh, as, as publishers said in 1976, the book that changed America. In terms of the book and how it was received, you write in the introduction to your work that Roots is so enmeshed in the canonical narrative of America. And part of the stance you take is this idea of, of Roots as a scripture. And I was wondering if we could go down that route, telling us about this concept of, of this text as a scriptural form. Yeah, and, and I suppose that it's it's likely provocative to call um, a book like one that you've never heard of, for instance, or, or don't have much experience with, or and maybe many listeners don't have much experience with, to call it a scripture, um, especially since it's not associated with you know any particular world religion, right? And that's how we often think of these terms. Um, for me, the way that I want to deploy that term is to think about um, text and identity formation, like cultural texts, and then how we make sense of the world around us and position ourselves in relationship to other people, to other ideas, to institutions, and the like. And so the way that I've been framing scriptures in this book and in, in other research is that scriptures refers to those cultural texts that people seem to read, but that also seem to read people back. Like, what is this impulse in which people feel like if they pull out a book, if they pull up a, uh, you know, sacrosanct story, that that's going to be the trump card that defines how people should be read and seen and how things actually are in the world. And that scriptural impulse is what I'm sort of thinking about here with Roots. And in fact, that Roots metaphor that Alex Haley's playing with in the, the title of his book, I think goes to that point. Like, when we talk about the root of a problem or the root of a matter, we're talking about that sort of isolated, single, je ne sais quoi that defines something against everything else, um, you know, that, that defines a language game in Wittgenstein's terms. 
And I think scriptures are a presentation of that. Scriptures are the instances of that codified into uh, material or whatever media um, and, and done so with such gusto and success that we forget that they are created and invented by human beings. And to um, sort of turn this concept on its head, you say, you know, we need to think about roots as a sort of scripture, but scriptures as roots, which is this concept you've just talked about, which is this idea of of the codifying of sort of human existence. In terms of analysing scriptures in general, how do you think we should be going about that um, anthropologically, so to speak? Yeah, and, and I think the... The, the anthropological piece for me is the most important as this sort of subtitle uh, sort of denotes. Um, and that's really building on the work of Wilfred Cantwell Smith, actually, um, who wrote a book called What is Scripture? A Comparative Approach, in which he tried to take uh, the sort of scriptural text of the world religions um, and use them as an opportunity to think about the phenomena of scriptures, the category of scriptures, um, and bring some more sort of analytical teeth to it. Um, and, and I think the, the biggest takeaway for me from his work is that he said that he suggested that scholars should think about scriptures not in ontological terms, as in scriptures are a thing, an object, but rather that they're relational, that there's an anthropology to scriptures. And so I've taken that building on the work of Vincent Wimbush and James Watts and many others uh, who've been working on this category. And I've, I've tried to run with it toward developing a model of an anthropology of scriptures in which we look at developing a sort of theoretical gro- gr- uh, grammar and vocabulary for talking about the work that people do with scriptures. So if we use the, the term roots, right, and, and we grant the idea that I said that oftentimes people think of scriptures in this sort of ontological root book way, that it's just a thing, it just exists in and of itself on its own, sui generis, if you will. Let's redescribe that in terms of an anthropology where we think about it really in light of what people do within and around it. And the way that I've tried to parse this out is by thinking about scriptures, yes, as roots and the sort of vehicle for rootedness, but also let's look at the dynamics and processes that come with it. So people use scriptures to uproot, right? They uproot other people. Like I'm going to pull out this text. I'm going to reference this. I'm going to draw upon this narrative to show that I am superior to you and you are wrong, incorrect, out of place. Um, and so we can uproot or displace others with scriptures. We can route, like R-O-U-T-E, or we could, you know, say root, if you prefer in this sense, where we're kind of in this uh, liminal space, right? Where we're working through, trying to make sense of the world. You win some, you lose some. And then the text is present with us. It's ever present with us as we work through it because we're committed to the text, um, in this kind of canonical relationship to draw upon Jay-Z Smith, right? The sacred persistence of the canon is that we continue to keep coming back to it um, and working ourselves out through it. I would say that's routing or rooting, um, R-A-U-T-I-N-G. And then we also can take root, that if we're successful in life, if we are able to um, meet our ends with the help of this text, that it becomes natural, right? It becomes naturalized. We become complacent and can take root in our social situation. And so I've wondered to what extent can we use that kind of model of uproot and routing and taking root to chart what is happening with people's identification with cultural texts. And that's what I mean by a sort of anthropology of scriptures. And while Alex Haley's roots 
for me, is a case study or a model of how these politics work. I think we could apply that same model to any number of cultural texts, uh, religious or non-religious, ancient, modern, sacred, profane, you name it, to think about the ways that we um, identify ourselves and each other. So in terms of, actually, before we jump into how Alex Haley's roots roots, uproots and routes, if we want to go that way. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, are we in this sense, de- not desacralizing, but are we removing scriptures from the notion of sacredness in this understanding of how they can be analyzed anthropologically? Yeah. I mean, to, to me, uh, I suppose I am, I, I don't even think I would apply the term like methodologically atheistic or um, agnostic, because I don't think we need to even go there yet to talk about questions of theology and sacredness. Um, when we take, uh, take as an example the wide human creativity that we can see in things like cultural texts, that like if we're going to redescribe how human beings do what they do, they are so amazingly creative that we, we need not draw upon a deus ex machina to help answer those questions. And so I don't know if I need to take out the sacred as much as there's a lot of work to be done before we ever get to questions of the sacred when it comes to thinking about what human beings can do. Because the reality is, right, is that even though um, we could say oh, all sorts of people have scriptures, and in fact, you look at any number of textbooks um, in religious studies especially, and you'll see the sort of comparison of, well, what's this religion's scripture? What's that religion's scripture? And we know all well and good that people from religion to religion, and even with religions, disagree about the, the data that we're charting there. But they do recognize the sort of power and politics around those texts. And I'm interested in parsing and, and analyzing and redescribing all the work that's going on there, right? The operational acts of identification to uh, reference Jean-Francois Bayard, rather than identity as some static fixed thing. I want to look at what people are doing with these texts and with each other and the power and politics that come with that before we ever get to um, looking at whether one's claims about how the world actually is, is verifiably true or something. So I don't think I have to get to the issues of the sacred um, to appreciate what human beings are doing um, in my analysis and sort of inventorying of these works. Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense. I, I, is what we're talking about the way that scriptures really um, play into identity politics before we get to the notion of the sacred? And in terms of roots, there is a sort of a dual conversation in terms of how two different groups are responding to that book. We have the, the black community and we have the white community. So can you talk about the way roots, roots, uproots and um, the other one routes for those two different communities in terms of identity politics. Yeah. And and I think that's the, that's the story. Um, You know, when we think about scriptures and Michel Desertot talked about this in terms of scriptural economy, that within a shared space, social actors are working to um, determine, you know, the notion of value and how much value one thing or one person has. But then also he said in relationship to these scriptural economies, the real thing to watch for is revolution in which the terms upon which we understand value change, like scriptural revolution being the the new paradigm that's introduced when let's say a new text comes on the scene 
right? A new cultural text becomes the word. Um, and with roots, this is precisely what happens. In let's say prior to 1976, and this during the sort of post civil rights movement, uh, sociologists um, and sociologists of religion, Michael Eric Dyson said that you had this sort of malaise after the civil rights movement about the laws had changed about the role, place, and value of black people in the United States, but people's hearts had not changed. And if the laws um, and the sort of new movements ushered in by civil rights great changed laws and jurisprudence. Roots changed the hearts of Americans to reconcile or make sense of how Black people could fit into that historical mosaic. And this is how that worked. Alex Haley basically said that in order to become American, truly American, you have to know who you are and where you came from to be great in this country. Black people, for the most part, were not able to tap into that kind of rhetoric because they had no history in the eyes of all the gatekeepers of history in the United States, the literati, you know, professional scholars, you name it, right? It was sort of conventional wisdom that there was kind of a blank space in the history books about how black people come on the scene because of slavery. There is no even real past beyond slavery. And if there is, it's all savagery. I mean, this is the kind of way that textbooks and, uh, the logics of history work. I even talk about in the book how um, in the 1990s and early 2000s, even on my own birth certificate, this was true. In the state of Texas, race was listed with scientific racist terms. Like I would be listed and my parents were listed as Negroids. It's only in the late, like only in the, like the last 10 years that that was changed uh, after a lot of civil rights litigation. Um, so this just goes to show sort of the ways in which racism is really enmeshed in how we make sense of the world, not just in this country, but in modernity. What Alex Haley did, though, was say, here's an, here's an alternative narrative. I know where I came from. And my family has been extremely successful. My dad was a professor. My mom was an accomplished pianist. I was a journalist. I you know, have uh, been able to write the story of Black people for audiences who are reading um, mass media publications. Um, and you're able to see the sort of brilliance and genius of black culture through my pen. I can show you with that same pen that I do have a past and that my, my history book extends all the way back to the Gambia, where I descended from a man named Kunta Kinte, who um, loved freedom so much that when he was enslaved in Africa and brought to the United States, he ran three times, tried to run three times, and on the third time, uh, the slave master chopped off his foot, but he continued to endure and persevere because he realized that there was hope. If he could start an African tribe in the new world, then there could be hope. And so he passed along the knowledge of his Mandinka people and in some extent, to some extent, his um, upbringing as a Muslim to future generations who passed it on orally uh, all the way down to Alex Haley who was able to record this story after talking with family members and looking at um, research in museums and archives from all across the world and conferring with an African oral storyteller named called Agrio, that he could chronicle this history. And this would be the new story of American triumph. This would be the manifest destiny that if people knew their roots and knew that America was greater than um, what the current history book said, but what Haley was writing as truth and fact and history, then 
there's a new paradigm for all of us to take hold on. We can root ourselves in that new kind of knowledge that actually creates space for white people and black people alike. Because everyone comes from somewhere, according to Alex Haley. And this is how we work it out. We deal with uproot. We route around for a while. But eventually, if we can find truth, if we can find our history, if we can find our roots, we can take root in this place called America and have the American dream, just like all those people um, who may have done wrong to us, but we can join them. Um, and, and that's the power of scriptures. Um, I mean, that's a, the power of colonialism too, isn't it? Right? Like that, that the, the story of oppression can become your own story if you work it enough. Um, and, and Alex Haley sort of presents a new paradigm for that. So I guess in a sense, Alex Haley almost sort of defines national identity in terms of, of genealogy and roots. Would you say that's what the book does? Genealogy and roots as vehicles for knowledge of a sort of truth about um, what he would call black uplift, that um, no matter what, if you work hard and do your best and use the tools and resources before you and work for the American dream, then you too can be American. Um, I think he understood his hist- he understood history and writing as being especially powerful tools and writing one's own story. And if, if this is unfamiliar to um, listeners today, I would say there's two ways that you can kind of see how powerful this sort of narrative is. And the one is to look at the rap lyrics of Kendrick Lamar or the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right, the television show, or um, Black Panther, The Lion King. All of these stories have allusions to roots. And in fact, were made possible because of the kind of media sensation Roots was. The other way to look at this is to see this Broadway play, Hamilton, that's also been really powerful in the United States and is now, I know, making waves internationally. This sort of notion of this uh, founding father of American history who writes his way into uh, the story of this country that's coming through revolution and becoming something uh, greater than the sum of its colonial parts. I mean, this is this sort of idea that one can write one's history and write oneself into greatness uh, really is a um, telltale sign of the kind of identity politics that happen with in and around scriptures. I think it's important to pick up on something you just raised, which is the relevance of roots today. You sort of mentioned Kendrick. Lamar and the, um, the French Prince of Bel-Air. And I'm wondering if we can tie this to um, the Black Lives Matters movement that's currently uh, going on around the world. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there was no way for me to write this book without not thinking about the context in which I was coming up and what was happening around me. And, uh, you know, the, the, the strange thing about writing a book, right, when you press send or you press, you know, write down the last period, uh, history continues, right? And it only, you hope, becomes more relevant um, and you gain more insights uh, through the reflection that comes after you drop the pen or turn off the computer. Um, and so the movement continues, the work continues. And uh, what I would say about the Black Lives Matter movement and roots is that this idea that um, America is a project that needs tending is what we see in civil rights movement and in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And there's a question as to how to go about doing that work. So the techniques and strategies of the civil rights movement, some would say today won't work any longer because we are a victim of the civil rights movement's success. 
Martin Luther King Jr., who is persona non grata, who was set up by um, American intelligence agencies, you know, like all sorts of things were done by the United States government to discredit King and so many other civil rights movements. He now has a holiday in this country. And people who voted against the civil rights movement when it's Martin Luther King's birthday will champion, you know, King by parroting a few lines. Um, the, the civil rights movement so often has become a slogan, a tagline. And the Black Lives Matter movement is sort of a response to say, look, we haven't arrived. We, the dream has not been realized. There's so much work that has to be done because people are still dying here on account of um, how they are racialized, how racism works in this country, um, because it, racism is alive and well. And uh, Roots, I think, steps into the story insofar as it creates a vocabulary for people to draw upon, right? This notion of the roots of the movement. We see this being used when Colin Kaepernick, the American football player who um, took a knee rather than standing up for the uh, national anthem in this country and received a lot of slack and hate and threats. You know, you can see him wearing a shirt, uh, a Kunta Kinte shirt, um, you know, with the name of the sort of um, ancestral figure noted in Roots. Um, Hip hop artists are drawing upon Kunta Kinte and the story of Kunta Kinte and the strength of Kunta Kinte as something worth channeling, conjuring, siphoning um, for the work of the movement today. And in the reboot of Roots, you get a much more active look at Black people's role in the um, writing of American history. Uh, and I mean writing in the fact that they fought back against the power. Um, women are given a voice that wasn't even seen in the original. I mean, they're, they're sly, they're cunning, they're strategic. They are working to dismantle the system so that uh, black lives can matter um, narratively, but also in the world of the viewers. And so this is uh, Roots. Roots has a place in the Black Lives Matter movement um, insofar as it is a resource to make sense of the world and also to, to critique the world and critique narratives that, have, that are no longer serving us well. In terms of the Black Lives Matter movement sort of becoming more prominent as you were writing the book. Did that have any impact on how you saw Roots as, as some form of scriptural text, the fact that it was so exceedingly relevant still in this, in this movement? I think the, the way that Roots became more relevant to me through the rise of the movement, um, and this is really between the time of my dissertation, completing my dissertation and then sort of scrapping the dissertation and writing the book, right? Um, the thing that I realized was that Roots was successful, but only so successful. And I talk about the way in which Roots has been um, used and some would say appropriated, but I would just say, right, scripturalized um, by audiences that might find themselves on different sides of the color line, different sides of um, the politics of identity, different sides of uh, congressional aisle. And it was in its success to be a medium for anyone to choose and use and deputize into their arguments, but also in the fact that we're still having some of the same conversations about civil rights, that I realized that part of understanding the anthropology of scriptures is looking at the way in which roots must be tended by human beings. 
that it's never, you know, I think sometimes people want to say, oh, you studied roots because it was a super successful book. And that's not why I studied roots. I studied roots because it's a book that people continue to find the need to tend. So even though roots was written in 1976, you still have people talking about roots and genealogy has never been more popular. In fact, now we don't just look at archives, we look at DNA, right? And we send off, you know, uh, vials of spit to see where we came from and who we are and what that might mean for us. I mean, that's weird, right? Like we should stop and say how weird that is. It's that same impulse though, that we see when people go to a book to try to make sense of who they are and where they come from. That's also weird too, but we do it and it makes the world go round. It uproots others. It helps us route through the world, strange worlds at that, and it helps us take root in new worlds. And that scriptural impulse, I think, became even clear to me as the Black Lives Matter movement was this um, arose in this moment of bewilderment, bewilderment for so many people who are like, why isn't America working the way that I was told in school and elsewhere? And I mean, now we're seeing that in a way that I wouldn't have imagined when I finished the first drafts of this book, um, is you, you see this sort of uprising that's happening all over the country and all over the world. Now, there's one thing that I just want to quickly touch on before we wrap up, which is this idea that you just raised about um, Roots is continually tended to, it's continually sort of raised in at particular moments. And you do mention in the book the way it's raised by politicians. You open the book with the fact that um, Senator Lamar Alexander references um, a quote from Roots, which is, find the good and praise it. Can we just finish off by talking about um, – politicians drawing on the text yeah it's uh so i start off the book talking about how senator lamar alexander of tennessee um republican um senator from tennessee who who understood himself to be a friend to alex haley who was also from tennessee um uses this during a time uh when he's supposed to help inaugurate president barack obama democrat uh african-american into the white house and so in his ceremony he talks about this is a moment to find the good and praise it no matter what side of the aisle you're on you know, that we can transfer power from one official to another. Uh, that's the American spirit. And we need to uplift that above party politics. Um, interestingly enough, I mean, I think that's a, you, there's, there are a couple of ways one can read that, but I think even more poignantly, now we see the way that Roots is um, operating as a tool for damage control. And one could say there was operating as damage control there for a white Republican Senator to have to put on a happy face while, a political opponent who's African-American is rising into the White House once again. Um, let's use roots to help us get there. Um, another instance in which this happened was when a governor of Virginia very recently was uh, caught, um, well, not caught the wrong word, but uh, he was found to have worn blackface um, earlier in his youth. And so what did his PR team say he was going to do? He was going to read roots. I kid you not. They said he's going to read roots in ta Coates. Um, in order to understand how race works in this country. This is 2019, 2019 when this happens. Um, it's, it's amazing to see the way that Roots continues to be sourced, resourced, tended, appealed to, um, to work out issues when things are um, rough, especially along racial lines. And um, this, is, this is how scriptures work. Um, you don't have to read them, but it's nice to know they're there um, and can be called upon uh, when necessary. Well, we have to wrap up there, Richard, but 
my goodness, that was so fascinating. And I just want to give the title of the book again for everybody. Um, Richard's upcoming book is Identifying Roots, Alex Haley and the Anthropology of Scriptures, published by Equinox as part of the, as part of the Culture on the Edge book series. But thank you again so much, Richard, um, for chatting to me today. Thank you very much. It was a treat. I really enjoyed sitting down with Richard to discuss roots because I must claim that I was fairly ignorant to the importance of this text by Alex Haley. And I would like to suggest that that is because it is so focused in the American cultural context. So as an Australian is not necessarily something that I was particularly aware of, I've definitely made myself aware of it now. But as Richard and I were discovering, discussing rather, my ignorance of the text after our interview Richard informed me that often the text is used as sort of a a cultural trump card amongst the mass media. And he sort of explained the way in which on news shows or in the paper or other mass media mediums that this text is sort of whipped out as this sort of gold standard of of cultural understanding or social understanding. And it made me think of a, a similar text that's utilised as a cultural trump card again here in Australia, which is Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu. And this book, which speaks of the Australian Indigenous experience by an Indigenous author, is often used in a similar way as this sort of cultural Bible on the Indigenous experience, and that text is certainly not without controversy. But I'm sure there's many more that, as I'm saying this, that our listeners can think of, and we'd love to hear on Facebook and Twitter other texts that are connected to religion and spirituality that are used as cultural trump cards. I'm wondering if you can think any of any off the top of your head, Dave. Oh gosh, there's a lot that I'm thinking of actually. There's there's a number of texts that kind of compete with roots for that and th- that have been making the rounds recently and and in a in a recent and I say recent it was uh, last season there was a discourse episode where um the contributors were speaking about a new kind of uh, Latinx uh, Mexicano uh, text that had emerged that was somewhat autobiographical. And so I think what we're seeing is that there's kind of new emerging voices in this landscape where in the U.S. especially, we have so many different immigrant stories and so many different um, immigration experiences that are happening that a lot of those are being retold for uh, the latest generation. And the controversy over this particular text was that um, it was not, it was not written by someone to whom that had uh, experienced it personally. And so it had created quite a stir because there are so many um, important cultural Bibles that locate each one of these ethnic communities for us. And so I think that every community, uh, every country has its it's culturally located texts that really help explain um, why a community is there, the struggles that it's that it's faced, and really can be used as a as a tool that that stands in for for their experience. and And I, like you, would love it if uh, readers uh, and listeners of the of the RSP who who have a text that is from outside the U S or outside Australia would love to share it with us. We would love uh, to hear those and we'd love to uh, perhaps include them in, in future episodes. Um, Next time coming up, we are continuing our kind of 
um, soft approach to the issue of time. In today's episode, it took the form of origins and roots and all the different ways that Richard Newton talked about roots. Next time, however, we're looking at more of a kind of um, geological sense of time in climate change. And the RSP's Candace Mixon spoke with uh, Gretel Van Weeren about climate changes, new approaches to environmental and agricultural ethics. So if you're interested in the relationship between religion and farming and religion and agriculture and how the ethical components of climate change are working for religious communities, you won't want to miss next time. Um, but until then, the only thing that's left for us to say is thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>